millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the new edition of TLS Voices. I'm Thea Linarduzzi and with our editor Stig Abel away, I'm joined today by the wonderful Toby Lishtig. Coming up on the show this week, as the Panama Papers continue to reveal dubious dealings in the flow of global capital, Edward Lutvac has reviewed a seminal account of the investigation and its fallout by the journalists first contacted by a John Doe, now responsible for the biggest data leak in history. The Panama Papers raise questions not just about where the line between legal and illegal lies, or whether we can ever trust politicians again. At stake here is the very concept of globalisation, the system by which our lives have become increasingly shaped. Edward will be joining us soon to unpick all of that. But are the corrupt leaders of today a patch on those of the ancients? We'll be reconsidering the dramatic and enigmatic Roman Emperor Nero, who's become a touchstone for unscrupulousness of the most perverse order. Three new exhibitions in the German city of Trier shed light on the dark life and times of Emperor Nero, and we'll be speaking to the excellent Mary Beard, who has reviewed all three. Finally, we'll jump from the damned to the beautiful, with a review by Hermione Hobie of four books about female stars in Hollywood, including Barbara Streisand, Elizabeth Taylor and Meryl Streep. Beyond the Max Factor finish, it turns out the politics of beauty don't run all that smoothly either. Now, it does seem slightly unfair, after last week's discussion of corruption in Brazil, to return to South America on a similar theme. This story begins with the alleged smuggling of $65 million out of Argentina by President Cristina Kirchner. The legal firm handling that transaction was one Mossack Fonseca, based in Panama. But we don't stay in South America for long. What soon becomes clear is that the Argentinian revelation is only the tiniest stitch in the story unravelled by the Panama Papers. Many, many more revelations have followed, and as Edward Litvak's review of a book by the journalists Bastian Obermeyer and Frederick Obermeyer, not related, I hasten to add, as his review shows the tapestry of fraud, tax-dodging, UN-sanctioned circumvention and outright kleptocracy is cast across the globe. Edward joins us on the phone now. Uh, Edward, all, all this begins with a superficially straightforward question posed by Bastian Obermeyer to the whistleblower. Is your data all about Argentina? The answer has yielded what you describe as the most important book, not just to the year, but of, of the decade for its tackling of the greatest question of the age. So what is that question and what, what does it have to do with the Panama Papers? Well, for many years now, economists all over the world have been debating the question of why there is rising inequality in the more advanced countries. 
And there was a big debate about how much of that is due to globalization. Globalization, of course, uh, industrial jobs go from the United States to Mexico. It happens every day. It started with very simple manual things. Now it's got to the stage of aerospace. That was one explanation. And the defenders of international trade, the defenders of globalization fiercely resisted that explanation. But there's some explanation. There's some part of it. Another part, of course, is the advent of uh, you know automation in all its different forms that devalues um, any form of uh, individual work and all that stuff. It routinizes it. Unless you're doing something with a lot of personal talent, uh, the machines take it away from you, whether it is industrial, commercial, distribution. But that, too, wasn't sufficient. And there was this big unresolved debate. And now we discover the actual truth. And the actual truth is that all advanced countries have tax systems, taxation systems, and these systems are supposed to be somewhat progressive. In other words, whatever they do, they cannot possibly cause inequality. On the contrary, because they tax the rich more than the poor. Well, it turns out now, one law firm in Panama, just one, and there are others in Panama, there are also others all over the world, probably around the corner from where you are, have established this one law firm established 214,000 offshore companies. Part of them were utilized by criminals, gangsters, outright tax fraud, evaders, and so on. But most of them were used by people who are very respectable, at least superficially respectable, because what they do is not tax evasion, let alone smuggling, narcotics, whatever. They do tax avoidance. And tax, they have created elaborate legal mechanisms with, with great difficulty in some countries, very easily, for example, United Kingdom, where the state is called non-dom, non-domicile, whatever, so you're resident, you're walking, drinking, and doing everything else, but you're somehow not resident. And very legally, they simply transferred their money to the 214,000 companies established by this one law firm or by the millions established by the other law firms. They moved them overseas, and the total effect is that tax systems that are supposedly progressive and supposedly reduce inequality actually cause enormous inequality because the the average poor working millionaire who has two or three million pounds, he pays taxes. Mm. The guy only has a few million pounds, he pays taxes. Effectively, but, what we have is money going from lower income people in, in the higher income countries to higher income people in, in lower income countries. And no, that is not just that, no, what it does, it goes out of nowhere because the people who have real money, which is, let's say, 20, 30 million pounds, they move it to these totally legal offshore mm. havens and simply don't pay taxes. And therefore, the overall effect of the tax system is very regressive. And that explains rising inequality. We've known for a long time about these non-DOMs and offshore companies. Um, it's been you know, talked about for years and years. What does the Panama Papers show us that we didn't know already? Is it to do with scale? No, it's a matter of, yes, yes sorry. It's a matter of scale. Right. We thought that it was marginal that it was a few billion here, a few tens of billion pounds here or there. No, it's not. It's trillions. It's trillions. Which, as you say, it, it sort of subverts was, the entire tax system. Subverts the entire tax system and turns any tax system 
into a me mechanism of which is regressive. Even if you went and you change the tax system, and supposedly it soaks the rich and it's supposedly very progressive, actually it's the opposite, because the people who've been really affected by it are not there in the first place. And they have now parked it in, in a company in the Bahamas that transfers it to another company in the British Virgin Islands and so on and so forth, and the money never in fact, appears before any tax system at all. And, and all this does carry extra weight, doesn't it, in, in this age of populist politics and, and an increasing distrust in the ruling classes? It is one of the causes of it, except that. Please understand that the people who are being victimised by this are not the poor, the working class only. It is even the person who, who you view as an affluent millionaire. He also, because the affluent millionaire, nevertheless, who would pay taxes. It's the multimillionaires, in effect, who have done it. So when you see the gatherings at Davos in Switzerland, where there are no millionaires allowed, only multimillionaires, these people celebrate globalization. And when they celebrate globalization, they're not thinking about how wonderful it is to go scuba diving in Polynesia or things of that sort. What they celebrate is the darling little company registered in the, you know, the Cayman Islands whereby they simply don't pay taxes. Um, I, I wanted to, to ask, I mean, the Panama Papers have given rise to a whole new term called leaktivism, uh, meaning the, the act of releasing confidential information to the world at large. Is this, is this something, I mean, I'm gathering the answer is yes, is this something that we can expect to see more of? And is it likely to deter those or, or simply just push them further into the, into, the, into the shadow finance system? The leak is absolutely not enough. The reason the Panama Papers works is because there's this international consortium with hundreds of media of newspapers around the world willing to, t the data is immense, is immense, willing to take chunks of data, take it back and look for their own countries, people and identification. We've had, the Panama Papers comes out originally, the next day the Prime Minister of Iceland resigns. But in the case of most other countries and most other people, it's, it's dribbling out week by week in Bulgaria, in you know Ukraine, in Iceland, whatever it is, bit by bit it's rippling out. And therefore we realize that without the intermediary element called newspapers, called reporters, people are willing to go and unbundle the data and relate it to their own countries and identify to individual people, without it, the leaks are worthless. The leak, per se, provides raw material that would be sitting there unmanageably mm. if you didn't have these hundreds of newspapers. And therefore, one of the lessons of the Panama Papers is that the global crisis in newspaper, newsprint, is really reducing the value of information because there's no way that other media can possibly convey this information. Indeed. Well, um, just mixed notes of, of hope and despair to end it on. Thank you very much, Edward, for Thank your you. time. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I mean, how do you feel? Hopeful or despair? <laughs> I think completely despairing. Yeah. And I think one of the, I mean, so as Edward was saying, it's the scale of the thing. We're not surprised mm. by the revelations. We're not surprised that some politicians in some countries are corrupt and that very, very rich people do their best to avoid tax and evade tax. But I certainly hadn't realised quite how big a deal it was in terms of the flow of international capital and in terms of its you know, effect on inequality. And 
I think what the, what his piece does an extremely good job of doing is p- picking through the whole thing and showing what a massive story this is. And it's, it's interesting because the original Panama Papers story broke, I think, it was at the end of June, perhaps? Mid, I think mid, it was earlier than Maybe that, it was earlier yeah. than that. And it's sort of, maybe it's just partly in Britain, it's been drowned out by Brexit mm. and in the States it's been drowned out by the American election. And yet we election. seem to forget that David Cameron was yes, involved in this and exactly. just sort of went away. And also just the kind of the wider story that this is an explanation of how globalisation is failing. It just doesn't seem to have been reported on sufficiently to mm. me. And I think it's something this piece does very well, which is mm. why I would urge everyone mm. to read it. Well, indeed. Um, I think we'll have to move on, though, now. But speaking of dishonesty and dishonest politicians, it's time to turn to Roman Emperor Nero. Mary Beard has just come back from a trip to Trier, where three new exhibitions focus on the man who came to the throne in 54 AD on a wave of promises to strengthen the Roman Empire. His reign lasted 13 years, during which he was accused of orchestrating the devastating Great Fire of Rome in order, I think, to make room for a new palatial complex. He blamed the Christians, of course, and of murdering his mother and perhaps ex-lover Agrippina, as well as his pregnant second wife, Poppea, and countless other relatives and citizens. When he committed suicide in 68 AD, his last words were allegedly, what an artist dies with me. In short, he was a complex character. Mary Beard joins Toby and me now. Mary, uh, one of the exhibitions, Nero, Emperor, Artist and Tyrant, focuses on Nero's biography. How, How successfully does it get to the heart of the enigma? Well, I think it does quite well, actually. I mean, these biographies of Roman Empire, of Roman Emperor exhibitions are always very hard to pull off because you tend to end up with an awful lot of lookalike portrait busts all supposed to be the man or his family. And you don't really get much sense of the context or the background. And I liked this exhibition a lot because it did try to contextualize Nero in a, in, a, in a kind of imaginative way. I mean, it thought about the economics of Nero's reign. There was a wonderful room um, where it took the theme of Nero as musician, as lyre player, and looked at what music meant in the ancient world. And it, it got a, a marvelous inscription, uh, inscription on stone there, which is actually showing you a musical notation from the ancient world. So I thought what it did was used Nero as a springboard to say a lot of lot of really interesting things about his life and times. Whether it solves the enigma, no, it doesn't. But then the whole point of the Nero enigma is that you can't solve it. Mm, presumably so that I would be an undesirable. You have to go to this exhibition to enjoy the enigma and follow some trails. And on those terms, you know, it's one of the best Roman exhibitions I've seen in a long time. And the, perhaps the definition of a trail is, is, is an afterlife. The exhibition called Lust and Crime sounds rewarding for its focus on precisely that. What forms has Nero's afterlife taken through the centuries? Well, I think almost my favourite, I think definitely my favourite of the three was the exhibition which concentrated on what later ages have, have made of Nero. And uh, you go into the show and you're confronted with some quite familiar images to us, uh, you know, a lot of slightly cheesy film posters about, you know, what Nero got up to on his off days. And I think at that point, rather interestingly, you think, mm, you know, is, does Nero really mean anything? And then you go through a whole series of rooms where, again, with a very, very nice choice of images. The exhibition organisers have really thought, what have people made of Nero? Why is he still important? What is it about Nero that somehow reaches to our anxious points? 
And I think, obviously, murdering mum is... It's quite um, is, is, up there. Uh, is, is, is very big, you know, because this is um, not just matricide, but the story always was that Nero had, had actually had an affair with mum. It was kind of, he was, he'd committed incest and then got rid of her. And there are paintings there looking at Nero's relationship with Agrippina, not the actual moment of the murder, but the moment when Nero comes and looks at the body that makes you see why this is such a haunting story and why why that combination of power politics, because in some way Agrippina was was murdered because she was getting in Nero's way, but sex, lust and power. And it's a kind of uh, an explosive combination. And this exhibition, I think, treats that very well and looks at the surprising variants of it um, because the medieval version of Nero and Agrippina uh, turns out to be slightly different. It isn't uh, quite the sort of sexy scene that you think of. Uh, Medieval artists thought what Nero did when Agrippina was dead was to say, I want to see where I came from. And there are some extraordinary copies, actually, not the original copies, of medieval manuscripts which show Nero (laughs) actually like a kind of um, uh, a surgeon uh, watching the dissection of Agrippina so that her uterus could be exposed to him and he could really know from where he'd been born. And, and, and by way of contrast, there's also one painting I think you mentioned in which he's, he's aligned with, with a child. So we've got the surgeon and, you know, orchestrating the whole and, and a small, bewildered child. <laughs> yes, I think my, uh, my favourite piece in the whole show was a painting which, you know, I should have known before and I'm sad to say I didn't, but I found it now by a Russian artist, 19th century Russian artist called Smirnov. And it shows Nero himself dead. But in the end, Nero kills himself. He's a, rather badly. He's a kind of clumsy coward in the end, and he has to be helped even to kill himself. Um, but it is a vast expanse of an empty palace where Nero is just lying on the floor dead. And three of his, his female attendants are the only ones left to him, and they're coming to pick up the body for burial. And it's empty, apart from, in the left-hand corner, a, a famous ancient statue, a rather nasty ancient statue, kitsch ancient statue, of a little boy, toddler, um, either playing with his pet goose, or, if you read it this way, strangling his pet goose. And I think what Smirnoff has done is to say here, um, how do we understand Nero? Well, actually, he's as ambiguous as that little boy. You know, he was, it was like having a child on the throne. And he was partly playful, but, but the, playfulness, the playfulness of a toddler it can be dangerously destructive. And so, you know, there's Rome is the goose. And Nero is the child playing or strangling it. And it's saying, you know, because Nero was only a teenager when he came to the throne, you know, what happens when you have a kid running the world? Mm. And, 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 well, and indeed, and what would his legacy be? And uh, I, I wonder how, how concerned with legacy was, was Nero? I mean, had he, had he read Horace or...? <laughs> must have read Horace. It's very hard to, to, to second guess those those things. I think that you know the the reported phrase, "Oh, what an artist dies with me," um, it, as his his supposed last words suggests uh, that 
Romans, because they were, who knew his last words, they're probably made up, um, but suggest there is a kind of sense that he... This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Was starting something. You know, that he was, uh, you know, he was someone of significance. And in many ways, the, the things that he tried to do in Rome, um, we now think that his uh, Golden House Palace, which was built right across the centre of the city of Rome, was a, a tremendously megalomaniac thing to, to conceive of. And in, in some ways, it was. But what has always struck me when I go around museums in Rome and looking at the remains of what Nero left is that, my God, it's good stuff. You know, Nero, you know, in, in a way, he had a sort of right to say what an artist dies with me, because what he sponsored in the art and the interior design is quite extraordinary. And it's another thing in the um, the biography exhibition in this trio that I think people should look out for uh, is they have just some little fragments of the wall decoration of Nero's Golden House, or if not the Golden House, one of his earlier palaces, but from much the same area. And they're exquisite. Do you think these exhibitions are in any way going to rehabilitate Nero? I mean, if you talk about 21st century Nero, are we going to think about him as anything other than the matricidal, <laughs> incestuous tyrant that he might have been? Um, no. I mean, I think that with all these imperial monsters... And, and, and Nero is perhaps the kind of archetype of the imperial monster. Um, there's always a strand in history, whether it is later novelists or you know, um, rather kind of hard-headed modern historians who try to say, look, he wasn't as bad. Look, he's been terribly misunderstood. You can do that with Caligula. You can do it with Nero. And up to a point, it must be true. You know, because I think it's really very, very hard to get a real grip on what Nero you know, actually did. You know, the poor guy 
you know, all the wicked tyrants, uh, in the end killed himself. There was a civil war afterwards, and it was always in everybody's interest later in Rome to blacken Nero's memory. We can't get through that. But I think that it would be going against the grain of the history of the last 2,000 years to think that what we're going to do is come up with a nice Nero. Um, because the, Partly because of that, uh, the role that Nero's always played for us has been. Um, He's one of the figures in which what we try to do is negotiate our idea of what it is to be transgressive, you know, what it is to have a teenager on the throne, what it is to have a ruler of the world who killed his mum and slept with her and who kicked his pregnant wife to death and, you know, you name it, murdered his tutor. Now, I think that we, it, that's a terribly important myth for us, and we've got to, to work with it. We have simultaneously to know that it might not be true. In fact, almost certainly isn't true. Um, but I think we perhaps have to give up the idea of, of you know, ever getting to the bottom of him. We have to think through the myth. And I think one of the things that these Trier um, Nero fest does is actually face that head on, you know, instead of saying, oh, it partly does this, look, we can have a look at what's going on at the time, and you can do that a bit. It says, look, you've got to face yourself. When you, when you think about Nero, you've got to face why Nero means something to you. you know, why are you going to go to an exhibition on Nero when you wouldn't choose to go to an exhibition on Vespasian? There is something quite troubling about, about the term you use, Nero fest. <laughs> Rather petrifying. And on, on that note... <laughs> But um, I hope people go and see it. Trier's not all that far away. Indeed. And you can fly to Luxembourg and it's only half an hour away. <laughs> and it's it's really worth doing. Thank you very much, Mary. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Bye-bye. I thought it was absolutely fascinating. Toby, will you be going to, to Trier? Um, I can't say I'll be going all the way to Trier, um, but, but I did, <laughs> I did, only because I already have my holiday plans sorted out. But I, I did think that was extremely interesting and most of my understanding and knowledge of Nero comes from the Robert Graves Claudius series mm. um, and it's quite nice to think of him in a slightly wider context um, and there was there was also one detail from Mary's piece that we didn't get to talk about which I thought was quite amusing which was when she talks about the um, the kitsch of it so um, yeah, there's the, the political cartoons, the political cartoons yeah. and, but then also the museum shop where they're selling mm. Cafe Nero oh, yeah. and I just wondered the extent to which um, uh, you know all historical figures however tyrannical are doomed to kitsch mm. eventually once they're put well, it's, it's it's that funny thing, isn't it? There's, there's a sort of slight unease about about those political cartoons, say, or any kitsch, in fact, where you've got you know Nero fiddling while while Rome burns, mm. because it does sort of seem to suggest that time passes and therefore we become immune to the real violence of history. Exactly. So, you know, exactly. yes, Stalin. Yeah, exactly. We get, you know, we're in the Hitler Museum of 2,000 years' time. Are there going to be, you know, souvenir Little mugs and things dolls. like that? Exactly. Yeah, I don't know. Absolutely horrendous, really. We won't be around for that, so I, I guess um, <laughs> Thank God for that. time will tell. Um, anyway, um, from the dark and prickly underbellies of global finance <laughs> and ancient Rome, uh, let's turn with not a little relief to Hollywood. Um, Hermione Hobie has reviewed four books about female stars, Neil Gabler's biography of Barbara Streisand, Ellis Cashmore's study of Elizabeth Taylor, Michael Shulman's take on Meryl Streep and George Tiffin's glossy edition of Portraits, A Star is Born. Hermione joins us on the phone now. H- Hermione, hi. As, as hi, as, as your piece makes clear, the, the story of these stars, variously called beauties, icons uh, and divas, it's a complicated one, at the heart of which are questions about the relationship between beauty and success and about the nature of beauty itself, namely how do we define it, 
who defines it and and on what terms how how significant is it for example that all of these books are written by men absolutely yeah i was i was pretty struck by that and i have to say though i i went into reading them interested about these women's lives most of which you know are pretty juicy and entertaining particularly elizabeth taylor who as most of us know had you know more lives than anyone it's um filled with outrageousness and glamour and excess but I was, I was as interested, really, in how they were written about and how we do write about beauty, which I think is a little like charisma, which I also talk about a little in the piece, and, and perhaps comedy as well, as in it's one of those things that uh, enthralls us and it's quite hard to write about without sounding either sexist or a little insane. <laughs> Um, or just quite over the top. One thing that's that's interesting, particularly about the Streisand book, is this idea that she invents her beauty. And by that, Gabler means she both sort of tries, you know. There is this idea that I think is, is kind of fashionable right now, that beauty is sort of labor. You know, if you, if you work hard, you become beautiful. Um, I'm thinking of uh, Britney Spears' latest single, but for Streisand, there's this, this greater dimension, which is that the invention of her beauty is also forcing or sort of bullying, I think Gabler uses the word bullying, people into acknowledging that her Jewishness can be beautiful. So it's pretty radical in Streisand's case. There's, um, there's um, an anecdote that Neil Gabler gives, I think it involves the, the photographer uh, Richard Avedon, and, and, and this, this he sort of builds yes. it as this seminal moment in which she does precisely that, she declares herself beautiful. Yes, and Avedon is so interesting because um, he he's kind of understood as the, the first fashion photographer who encouraged models to express their personalities. In other words, the beauty he was seeking to capture wasn't static and, you know, purely facial. It was about who these women were, which I think is so important for Barbara Streisand because it's not just about her, you know, putting on the eyelashes or, you know, you know the, the material transformations. It's also about her, her kind of will and her resolve and her insisting that she be received as a star and mm. as a beauty. I guess you, you can't help but notice, though, that there the person calling the shots, as it as it were, is is still a is still a man. It's a male photographer, and he will decide, you know, what passes and what doesn't. Very true. Very true. I mean, and that is, you know, a problem throughout these books that perhaps the way in which we're receiving beauty is through men. Mm, I think uh, I'm particularly interested in the way that that has actually shaped the way that they that the, the female stars see themselves though that's something that you that you do discuss a bit. Yes and particularly I mean particularly with the older generation in terms of marriage um, I write in the piece that throughout George Tiffin's book for which each portrait is accompanied by sort of zinging little quotes and one-liners from the various film stars as I was reading it you know the first two or three decades of cinema, or maybe more, four decades. It was incredibly striking how many of these women were quipping about men and marriage, either stealing husbands or getting husbands or not getting husbands, as though, you know, this is the prime metric for desirability and attractiveness. I mean, that's, that's perhaps an obvious point. Of course it was then, but things are changing now, I hope. 
That actually, Hermione, that, that was a question I wanted to ask because um, these uh, books will concern actresses who were sort of in their heyday um, uh, a few decades ago or a couple of decades ago, although, you know, Mer- Meryl Streep is still a, a major a major star. But how have things changed uh, in the era of social media? How, you know, what is it like for the Scarlett Johansons and Emma Watsons of the day as opposed to Elizabeth Taylor? I think one major change has been the debate over pay. After the Sony emails hack, when it was revealed that so many... Actresses, I think Jennifer Lawrence was the prime example, were being paid far less than their, you know, uh, male colleagues. It really began this huge debate that Meryl Streep, in fact, has been pushing, you know, sort of longer than anyone. She's been saying these things and insisting on these things for a long time in various acceptance speeches. But that really brought that uh, inequality to the fore. And unfortunately, that was also accompanied by the the naked picture leaks in which Jennifer Lawrence said, you know, if you look at these, you are complicit, basically, in this abuse. So it's been a very important moment, and I hope a moment of great change for the way that women are allowed to operate within Hollywood. The uh, The fact of women fighting so hard for, for equal pay is hugely significant, and I think it it kind of will change everything else. You know, I I think it's going to have this sort of ripple effect. Um, Humanizing, essentially, it might seem strange to go from, you know, talk of pay and money to humanizing. But but that's really what what the argument is about. It's women saying, you know, we are human beings too, doing the same job, pay us the same. So what what hope, if if any, do do these books offer budding actresses of all shapes and sizes? Oh, my goodness. Well, I think the Meryl Street one is is full of hope. Not to bang on about the wonders of Street, um, I wouldn't be the <laughs> I'm one of a, a chorus of people doing that, I'm sure. Uh, but you know, she from the start of her career insists on being treated as an equal. There's a very interesting bit in the book about um, how so many men, Bill Clinton included, tell her that their favorite role of hers, and obviously she has had such a varied career and played so many different types of women but they tell her her favorite role is in the deer hunter where she plays this timid checkout girl and it's really not much of a role at all but she's very young and blonde and beautiful in it and you know her sort of despair over this that that actually she's played these rounded fascinating women but that she's still sort of remembered and loved for this passive role but having said that there is this great change, which is, you know, at the end of the book, Shulman, Shulman writes that now the, the role that men most want to talk to her about is, in fact, her role in The Devil Wears Prada, where she plays a fashion editor, uh, a sort of thinly veiled portrait of Anna Wintour, I think it's generally acknowledged to be. Um, and, you know, she's this incredibly powerful and assertive and slightly terrifying woman. So I guess that offers some hope. But one thing I've been very amused by, and that, that uh, as you know, couldn't quite fit in the piece, is this this sort of phenomenon of a it's a it's a kind of a subculture of celebrity profile parodies. So recently, there was New York Magazine, an online sort of Mad Libs celebrity profile generator. So you fill in you know a few details, and it writes you profile of a young female celebrity point from the point of view of a man just obviously very funny but i hopefully when when these sorts of things are being made fun of it means 
that men are going to start writing the sort of profiles that are, you know, just all about how the actress looks. Mm, and, and, and as you say, that maybe flag up the difference between gazing at and actually seeing and seeing someone for, for their humanity. Absolutely. I think that's that's such a key distinction, because as I say in the piece, of course, we're meant to look at movie stars like they're on a screen and they're sort of meant to be beautiful and looked at. That is their job. But there is this difference between just gazing and between seeing them as, you know, as the people that they are portraying. Something to think yeah. about next time we go to the cinema. Excellent. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you very much, Hermione. Thanks for your time. Oh, my pleasure. Bye. Where do you stand on all that then? Where do you, where do you stand actually on the on the admittedly underpowered current movement for um, to kind of stop male object, objectification? To stop male objectification. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Why are you for it? <laughs> I'm all for it. I think it's I think it's time that you know men had to deal with that sort of thing. Um, no, I I I unlike with the Panama Papers, I'm rather more optimistic about this story. I feel I feel <laughs> like we that. are, uh, especially as as Hermione said, we we're in the era where we can satirise those kind of male written hagiographies of female film stars. And once we hit satire, we can then move on to yeah. you know parity. And um, <laughs> I, I very much hope in 30 years' time. When when people are writing the same books about today's stars, mm. that they won't all be written by men. Right. Onwards. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Onwards. Next week's podcast, I should probably say, will be slightly different. The reason being that this week's issue is, in fact, our legendary summer double issue. So there will be no TLS next week. What we're giving you instead is an extra generous issue this week, which should tide you over. It includes an exclusive extract from the excellent Ema McBride's second novel, The Lesser Bohemians, Toby, for those of us who have been chomping at the bit ever since reading A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing, give us a hint of what we can expect. Well, we can expect the same urgent, unruly voice, the same linguistically dazzling register. Um, I genuinely mean this when I say that no one writing today writes like Eamon McBride. I think she has developed a style all of her own, and it is very, very exciting. Um, and we can expect lots and lots of sexual passion, because this is a novel that is all about the torrid love affair between uh, a young student, an 18-year-old drama student, and a much older man. Um, and it, it is about passion, and it is about... Uh, disappointment and anger and all the other things that go with passion but it is very very um, full-on and uh, it is utterly brilliant I'm going to go out on a limb and say that it is better than her debut novel I'm going to go out on another limb and say it's the best novel I've read all year gosh and I'm going to go out on a third limb I don't know what that makes me (laughs) I I have no idea some sort of tripod and (laughs) say that um, I think it's an absolute scandal that it hasn't been long listed for the Booker Prize Agreed. I mean, I've only read the extract and yeah, agreed. Absolutely. Um, so, so next week's podcast is an interview that you have done, Toby, with Ema. Yes. Um, and following the interview, Ema will be reading or she, has yeah, already she, read yeah. this, this full Yeah, she's going she's gonna to give a reading of the full extract. And she, um, she is, as well as being a brilliant writer, she actually is trained as an actor. So she reads brilliantly. Uh, I think everyone will enjoy that. I can actually vouch for that because this this was all just a ruse. I have I've listened to the whole thing and it's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> so you would be it. fools to miss it. <laughs> uh, right, that really is it for this week. Thanks to uh, Edward Litvak, Mary Beard, Hermione Hobie, and of course Toby Lishtig. Remember, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. And we'll be back every week with highlights from the TLS and discussions of other cultural goings on. This week's paper, The Summer Double Issue, is now on sale with the pieces we've picked today, as well as Hal Jensen on the question of what makes a book or poem last, Katie Guest on how five writers found their voice, 
Keith Miller on what suits and hoodies say about the people who wear them, Richie Robertson on a new life of Schlegel, he calls it a rescue mission, Kirsten Hodge on how women make decisions, Shira Tarrant on pornography polemics, Barbara J. King on Australian author Tim Winton's landscape memoir, and Kate Webb on a clutch of new novels, including The New Dave Eggers, which sees the great American road trip as a flight, a failure and a threat. I'm off on my very own American road trip for the next few weeks, so I hope to find none of those things there. You can also visit our website, of course, the-tls.co.uk, to learn more about our print and digital subscriptions, and follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at The TLS. Bye for now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.